What's up, fam? Welcome to episode two of the Look Again podcast. Today, I get to interview my friend, Sam Sue. Now, just a reminder, the Look Again podcast is here to provide you a name and a face to some of the broader issues going on in our world today. Today's guest, Sam, is my friend who I met at a summer project in Denver through our campus ministries. Similar to Pedro, who I interviewed in the last episode, it didn't really dawn on me until I had known Sam for quite a while that he was an immigrant. Now, Sam has been in Colorado for quite some time. He doesn't really have any kind of accent, so I just assumed he was born in this country. Only after knowing him for a while did I come to realize he was born in Taiwan and is actually still trying to figure out how he can stay in the U.S. long term. Sam's going to tell us about what it was like to go to elementary school and a white American church as a Taiwanese kid. He's going to tell us about what he's doing now at grad school in St. Louis, going to a church that deals with racial reconciliation firsthand. And he's even going to explain the Pixar short film, Bow, that was played before Incredibles 2. All right, you're going to like this one. Here's Sam. So let's just start out, let's start there. Um, tell me, Sam, tell me a little bit about what it's like for you to be an immigrant in the U.S. Do you feel like an immigrant? Um when did you guys come to the U.S.? T- tell me a little bit about your life. Yeah. Um, so my story as an immigrant begins when I was about five years old. Um, I was born in Taiwan, and I'm a, a citizen of Taiwan still. Um, I moved to Indiana in the U.S. Um, when I was five, and then we finally settled in Colorado when I was six, and that's where I was raised. So I think that's that would make me what people call a third culture kid which means that I grew up in a culture that was different from that of my parents culture so inevitably that brings with it some like cultural clashing and maybe kind of a struggle to understand where exactly you fit into the world your parents came over what how did they come to the U.S.? my mom took us over first uh you know the way she tells it she really felt like God was leading us to to move over to the U.S. Um, And it was maybe a little bit of an unusual move because they had a pretty stable income back in Taiwan. And they they applied for like a temporary, like a tourist visa. And then it became longer term when my dad came over in order to work. From your point of view, is it, do you feel like your mom was right? Like God was calling you guys over here? (laughs) So that's a tough question because it's still something that, you know, my parents have conflict over today. Uh, My dad had a architecture business going and I think he was a little bit more resistant to come over. Um, I can speak to uh, the effect that it had on me and Caleb, my sister, a little bit. I think the advantage for us was that we were given a lot more flexibility in our education Um, And by that, I mean, the Taiwanese education system is pretty rigorous and and it demands a lot of of the students and I think takes a real toll on their mental health. So you can expect kids to spend, you know, all day in school, as we would expect in the United States. And then right after school is over, they spend up to like seven hours a day into the evening um, 
at cram school because there's uh, a lot of emphasis placed on high school entrance exams and that will almost determine like your career trajectory yeah so you didn't have to go through that that's right yeah because we never took even a day of school in the taiwanese education system and you're glad for that i think so after seeing going going back when i was 10 and seeing some of the effects that it had on Hmm. uh the kids in the system not to say that the american system education system (laughs) is perfect perfect (laughs) pretty far from it but you know i i do think that my mom was really intentional to like supplement the education that we were getting in school with maybe some theological education at home and and, uh, supplementing like our math education where she thought it was lacking um, while at the same time allowing us to have more like creative freedom and more time to rest as kids. When you started going to school in the U.S., did you know any English? Yes. So it's pretty common for uh, Taiwanese uh, kids to be taught, at least in in cities where I grew up to be taught Mm -hmm. uh, English alongside Chinese. I'd say like... I was definitely fluent when I started first grade. I skipped kindergarten. Nice. Um, I just didn't go to school at all that year when I was five. (laughs) Yes. So what was it like then growing up elementary, middle, high school as a Taiwanese kid in Colorado where it was probably pretty white? Yeah, I I wouldn't say I ever got bullied, but I grew up in uh, Lily White, Littleton, Colorado. Um, (laughs) It's it's extremely white. I think in my high school graduating class, there were maybe like, maybe like 15 students of color out of over 450. Yeah. Um, wow. uh, I, I think I was like very aware from the beginning that I stood out. I remember in elementary school um, that like on the first day of class when teachers read out names, um, I would hide under the table and they got to my name because I have a, I have a Chinese legal name. And so it just sounds different, and I didn't mm. want to be different mm. as a kid. You know, I, I owned that a little bit growing up, but I still had this consciousness that I was, like, very different. I, I wouldn't say I was ever bullied, but, you know, there's always, like, kind of these, these like, stereotyping comments about me, like, being good at math. It was like, okay, <laughs> I guess that's true. You're but, very good at math. Yeah. <laughs> and then... um you know, like playing the piano and being unathletic and stuff like that. Um, I feel like when I was in high school and had a close, or even sometimes college and had a close friend who was a minority, mm -hmm. because I was their close friend, I felt like it was okay to make some of those racial jokes. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, I'm like, that's maybe even worse. You know, if I'm their good friend and I'm making racial jokes, I don't know, did you ever have that circumstance where you had a good friend and out of nowhere there would kind of say a uh, stereotype that caught you off guard yeah i mean it's it still happens i i'm still trying to figure out how i feel about it i don't think i mind it as much when it's coming from a close friend and uh, honestly i feel like that's somewhat part of friendship is, is you roast each other right and it's not it's more it makes me way 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 more uncomfortable when it comes from a, a stranger or even okay. just an acquaintance acquaintance and they're making some assumption okay. about me but if it's coming from a close friend where I know there's, like, love established, I don't take mm-hmm. it as, like, somehow um, reducing me to um, stereotypes about my cultural identity. Mm-hmm. Because I know that that person has, like, already taken the time to get to know me and love me mm-hmm. um, and I them, you know. As, as like, a, a minority, I'll make 
fun of white people for like their inability to handle <laughs> as you should heat, you know <laughs> and like their pickiness and yeah their inability to dance things like that <laughs> so it's all in love can you dance um <laughs> better I, than i'd like people. to think so <laughs> better than white people yeah so in elementary did you already have the name sam um yeah so my mom actually came up with uh samuel first before she gave me my chinese name when you were a baby yeah, yeah yeah so it was like really uh she was a strong believer and she was really in- informed by like the bible's narrative and and mm-hmm. like i think the story of samuel and yeah and hannah really captured her because yeah. i was her firstborn and whatnot cool yeah what was your what's your chinese name uh yeah is that yeah. what they would try to say they tried to say that and then i just say i go by samuel or i go okay. by sam that's funny because this is you know, this is totally different, but I went to a new elementary school mm-hmm. in uh, third grade, and the teacher would call me Donald, and I was so <laughs> embarrassed because really? I, I thought it was like an old man name, and I just remember a little, as a third grader, I was like, I felt like everyone was laughing at me. That kid's name is yeah. Donald. I said, it's, it's Donnie, actually. <laughs> but, I mean, now I love my name, and a similar experience, just no racial component. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it just goes to show you kids are kids, mm-hmm. and they, they want to fit in. You know? Everyone wants to fit in, yeah. yeah. In high school, do you feel your culture diverging away from your parents because of that desire to fit in? That's a good question. So I think my parents always were pretty assimilationist. Uh, like, they never, they never had us enrolling in, in Chinese schools, which some Asian parents do in order to hang on to some of that culture. It'd be hard to in Littleton anyway. You know, I think I was just very involved in like a, a very conservative church culture. Um, and then that's, I think like the more and more I've, I've come to understand it, it's like very attached to, to whiteness, at least in America. So I don't, it never really felt like I was, I was like intentionally trying to pull away from them the only thing i remember is that i i felt like very conscious of my my parents like uh ethnic identity and their accents and i was like kind of embarrassed of them when we went to school functions together as i understand it like a lot of teenagers experience that with their parents um sure. maybe not so much the for different reasons compo- that component but yeah so that's like looking back on it definitely not something i'm proud of i don't think i ever had this like rebellious face where i was like i'm i'm going to like push back against my my parents asianness or something okay. I, I, the only way i thought about it was like i'm trying to fit in mm-hmm. uh, a while ago we had this conversation about mm-hmm. uh, this sh- this pixar short film yeah uh what's it called bow it's called bow yeah uh it was played before incredibles 2 yeah and i got to the theater very late mm-hmm. so i missed half the short film mm-hmm. and i basically just saw this uh dumpling acting like a human and then at the end of the short film spoiler alert if you haven't seen it the mom uh eats the dumpling who was living and i later i found out that the dumpling was her baby Mm -hmm. or no she she was cooking and it came to life but she raised it as her own right yeah and so i think myself and a lot of white people were confused about this Mm -hmm. but you just explained it to me in a really cool way so Talk a little bit about what that short film um, meant to you. Yeah, um, and like I mentioned, I think this is an experience that 
that maybe like some of my my friends who are third culture kids or immigrant kids would resonate to a lot more because my 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 parents did um, assimilate a, a good amount. But yeah, so the the whole idea is like um, for a lot of white people, it was like really disconcerting to see the mom like eat her baby basically. But if you read some of the comments by the short the short films maker. Um, she, she wrote it basically to talk about her experience growing up Asian American in Toronto and her relationship to her mom. Um, and, and something I think her mom used to say where like, man, I I wish I could like eat you. You'd be safe in my belly again. And like during pregnancy, during pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think there's like definitely some of that for, for immigrant parents where they're, it's kind of like during during that short film there were all these things that were happening like the kid the the dumpling was trying to play soccer but it was like too squishy so its head would get bashed in and stuff <laughs> and and so it feels like that i think to immigrant and the dumpling, parents uh, wanted to date this like blonde girl right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly and and it feels like that culture is like tearing them away I'd say my parents were were always a lot more open-handed about that. Um, I think a lot of that came from like their faith in God and and just trusting that he was like someone who could care for me in a way that transcends culture. And so I never felt as much of that like cultural tension as um, some of my friends that are immigrant kids do. But I I imagine for them it was still very much like oh wow they're they're growing up and they're they're like American kids. They look like Taiwanese kids on the the outside, mm. but this is not like how a Taiwanese kid typically right. would, would be, you yeah. know? You mentioned earlier that you were always good at math and kids would point that out. And um, I think you before have told me that uh, Asian or, or Chinese uh, immigrants can be termed a model minority mm-hmm. just because they seem to have less poverty or mm-hmm. be getting more educated what does that um mean to you is that a stereotype is that is there a reason that uh, asian immigrants are or, or just asian americans are, are labeled that way yeah i i think there's that's something i need to look a lot more into myself but i think typically when you talk about asians as the model minority that's um it's it's kind of reductive because i think what most people are pointing to is like the uh, say Taiwanese Americans or Chinese Americans or like Korean Americans, Japanese Americans that they meet, um, all of whom are coming from pretty well-developed countries with very strong education systems sure. and um, kind of a culture that that really values uh, material success and achievement. But that's also ignoring the experiences of a lot. Like Asia is obviously much bigger than that small right. region of um, East east america so or east asia and um you know you're you're not really capturing the experiences of like vietnamese immigrants like the the Hmong, um cambodian americans and so i'm yeah i'm not really sure how like the the model minority um theme came to be but it does seem like so maybe it's just a lot of uh people who already had a bit of a head start when they came anyway Mm-hmm. in general right yeah right and, and less so for like refugees white americans might see more latinos or the vietnamese people 
coming in and, and mm-hmm. as not model yeah because they're coming in as refugees and just don't have that head start right right exactly okay so real quick about your faith um so you said faith you said faith is very important to your mom uh i obviously know it's important to you now mm-hmm. when when and why did did that become important and you feel like your faith has been mostly influenced by american christianity has have you learned anything from Ta- you know Taiwanese Christianity mm-hmm. or is there a difference? Obviously, same same God, same faith. But mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I I definitely think I've been a lot more influenced by American Christianity, at least to the extent that I've been like most of my faith, my formative years were spent growing up in white churches mm-hmm. and under white pastors, white leadership, white mentors. And yeah, I I think like the strengths that come from that, you know, a love for a love for the Bible, a a desire to understand doctrine. Um, Uh, Like the reformed movement. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, There's this, I think a lot of emphasis placed on like propositional knowledge in the West and you see that pattern in theology has your faith been at all influenced by your mom's like taiwanese faith or or have you seen differences there what yeah i you know i think like again my parents really assimilated quite a lot even in terms of their faith like they could have chosen to go to a chinese church or something sure but they chose to go to an american church or white church Mm -hmm. um that's that's one thing i'm trying to wrestle through is what exactly does a Taiwanese Christianity look like an answer I I haven't really come to understand yet I I, I've been learning about how as believers when we're like trying to bring the gospel to a different cultural context it's important not to like impose our cultural preferences as though they're normative um Mm -hmm. but you know like you do have in Taipei like churches that are Hillsong style or whatever and so I think there it's almost like you can't really get away from that that like western or white influence christianity that's that's like something i'd like to explore a lot more in the next Mm -hmm. few years is as because the past few years have been me like times of me like owning my cultural identity a lot more and trying to figure out how that intersects with my faith and now you're in st louis Mm -hmm. you're involved there with a church that is focused on reconciliation of different cultures Mm-hmm. right is that correct description yeah well yeah and in, in a sense cultures I, I think i would say like reconciliation of different races with the the like long ugly history of um uh just racism in america as the backdrop so why why would you attend that church yeah i feel pretty strongly that as a as a believer i'm i'm um as a follower of Jesus, I'm like called to work for the welfare of whatever city I'm placed in. Mm. And like yeah. what I knew of St. Louis was, was uh, Ferguson and yeah. like black lives matter protests. And even when I visited there, the segregation between the white part of the city and the black part of the city is so distinct. And so unlike anything I'd seen in Denver mm. um, that I was like, okay, it clearly there's, there's like this long history there's a problem yeah and as i read more and more i realized okay so st louis has this crazy dark racial history it's like the court where where the the dread scott decision um was was uh struck and then there's been like this long history of restrictive um 
covenants and and race-based uh like deeds and and just like a lot of efforts to to keep um kind of an underclass of people based on their skin color and so that's if if you have that much history it's going to influence um things even to today so yeah wonder, some of that isn't too is recent history right yeah police brutality yeah yeah and mass incarceration how do they see that racial reconciliation through without while the, while still being a church not a like political or uh social group you know yeah um well i think the first thing is like something that maybe we haven't always done a good job as christians um especially like in the West, I think we need to make sure not to draw a distinction between um, like the spiritual and the material realms. And, and so like, I think that the gospel speaks to us as, as whole creatures, um, sure. soul and body. And, and so if there's like damage being done to people uh, in the, in the now, I think we speak against that as um, oppression. It's, it's not, the churches so ultimately the church's duty is to reconcile people to uh to jesus christ as yeah. lord um but that does not entail just a future salvation of their soul mm-hmm. um like we get a picture of often it, it includes implications for the here and now and that's what you see in in jesus's ministry not just that he was making people spiritually well but also that he was healing um the sick and the disabled but yeah you're you're right it's like it's also easy to get that twisted because i think it's also important for the church to recognize that um until like jesus himself makes all things right we're never going to we're not going to fix all these issues uh, in this world so if anything the way i look at it is more of like the church fulfilling that vision at the end of revelation of like people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together before God. And mm. if in our present age there's there's not that for some reason, then then there needs to be change. Like if yeah. there's a separate white church and a black church, then something has gone wrong, I would say. Man, it get me excited. That's that's so cool. I I think for some of us it's hard to you know, we don't see it. We don't live in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um so it's easier for us to to not realize it's a problem or it's it's something we need to focus on, the church could could certainly do a, a, a pray and and seek how to where we can restore, mm-hmm. you know, what what can be restored how. Mm-hmm. So you uh, get a bachelor's degree from Boulder, CU Boulder. Mm-hmm. I would I would almost call it a prestigious school versus <laughs> a state school. As, yeah. State would you school. call it prestigious or just expensive? Um. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I got in state, so that helped. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then you get a master's degree, mm-hmm. right, in applied math. So my my bachelor's is in applied math. Okay. My master's will be in in epidemiology. It's a public health. Okay, degree. so you get the you just got a bachelor's from CU Boulder. That's right. And then you you worked in Denver. Mm-hmm. At, what was the uh, what was your job? Uh, my first job out of college was teaching in Denver Public Schools, and then mm-hmm. I worked as a data specialist for a reinsurance company. Okay, so you're you're working a, a math job. Uh, if I understood right, you had been working at this job for, what, two years? You came to a point with your visa status that something had to change for you to stay in the country. Yeah. 
So when I hear that, I think my friend Sam, he's an awesome guy. He's doing great things for America, helping the economy. He's got a college degree, and the U.S. wants him out. <laughs> or or I, that, that was probably strong. Doesn't want him out is just making it difficult for him to stay here. Mm-hmm. And that frustrates me as your friend. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really know the politics of it, but as your friend, it frustrates me. So how, how would you, I don't, I don't ever, I didn't ever get the vibe that you were frustrated. <laughs> Maybe you were a little <laughs> bit, but you, whenever I talked to you about this, you seemed to be chill about it. Yeah. So were you, were you ever frustrated or, or by that? Or maybe start with why, why did you have to change your visa? Well, I, I'd say first, my, my family's in a pretty unusual situation. You usually don't juggle that many temporary visas without ever getting a green card. And that's why, like... So why haven't you got a green card? So to get a green card, you need to be sponsored. Um, the easiest way is through marriage. Um, that's why green card marriages are a thing. You hear that, ladies? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> As Sam's friend, I, yeah. never mind. Continue, Sam. <laughs> Yeah, like <laughs> marriage or or sponsored by an employer or, um, you know, you're a refugee or something. And my parents were none of that, and they weren't able to get sponsorship to stay long term. And so eventually, like when, when I turned 21, I became my own legal family unit. Mm-hmm. And which that, that meant like the clock starts ticking for me once I graduate from school. I'm no longer able to be here on a student visa unless I extend it up to three years under something called uh, OPT, um, optional practical training, in order to um, basically extend my education. Yep. But after that period, I either need to, like, go back to school or, like, you know, get married or something and mm-hmm. or leave the country. Did you try getting married or...? <laughs> uh, not, not very hard, no. <laughs> So, I'm sorry, did you say a, a business, like a company, could sponsor you to get a green card? Um, technically, yes. It's it's a long and complicated process. And I think the industry that you're in depends, like, will impact your odds of getting something a lot. So, like, if you're in academia, I think it's a lot easier to get a green card. Okay, so you got another visa. So, you're, at, you're in your second year of... Uh, this public health degree mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that something you had wanted to go into or just went into to stay in the u.s um so it was something i increasingly was drawn to after my time teaching i was like becoming more and more interested in some of the social determinants of health yeah and also wanting to still do quantitative uh data related work okay. and so i wanted to find some way to bring those two together so how do you how do you hope to help people with your degree the thing with public health is that 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 i really appreciate is that there's a very holistic model of what mm. contributes to a community's well-being it's not just um yeah. biological exposures like oh mm. there's a toxic plant down the sure. river um but also like where you grew up like if you have access you know you think about a like a poor urban neighborhood that's a food desert it's not easy to get food there's mm. you're you're afraid of like violence in the street yeah. and so you don't like go on runs um yeah. even your your parents or you mindset. don't have time yeah maybe i don't working, have time yeah. so all those age. things contribute with my interest in in math there's like a lot of emphasis on okay here's how you you kind of like structure a model to actually get at the causal issues mm-hmm. um 
Sure. And I think along with that in public health, there's also a focus on policy. Like how can we change some of the long-term outcomes okay. of, uh, of people living in these communities or who are exposed to all these different yeah. risk factors. Okay. So anyway, you get done, you have one more year to your degree. Then how long does your visa last? Um, so technically my visa expires soon after I graduate, but I can extend for the three year for the again. OPT three years. Yeah. And then after that, you would have to get married, find a sponsoring job or leave the country. <laughs> okay. So with your experience, tell me in, in a minute, in 60, 60 seconds, mm-hmm. how, how can we make this immigration system better? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, don't, I definitely don't think I'm an immigration expert. So I, I think first, the core of it is it definitely needs to be simplified. It, there's all sorts of crazy hoops that my family's had to jump through in order sure. to like fill out these different forms, pay these different fees in order to you know, be able to stay for a couple, couple more years. I think Canada has a, a really good immigration system. It's kind of, it's fairly merit-based and it's, it's based on like, this point system that they have uh, based on like your degrees and the different qualifications and jobs that you have. Um, and my understanding is their system also allows for a much smoother transition into permanent residency or, or the green card process. Yeah. And so it's like, if you're a contributing member of your society, you can stay there yeah. uh, indefinitely. Well, and I guess I should have asked first if you were, ever frustrated with the process because like i said you never really seemed upset about it or is that maybe more due in part to just think it uh, like romans eight twenty eight? you know <laughs> it's gonna work out for what god has planned or yeah i, th- I think so um like definitely a, i feel like a theme of something that god has taught me a lot throughout my life is that a lot of my pain and a lot of what i perceive as failures are him working things together for good like mm-hmm. you mentioned for uh, a greater purpose and I definitely feel that way about my immigration status and I look at it as a blessing that I'm like almost forced to be launched into um, the world and uh, to just be aware of different needs around the world and not just hemmed in. Yeah. And going back to that beginning point about being a third culture kid, nowhere really feels like home for me. So it's, mm. it doesn't really feel to me like I'm being kicked out. Kicked out. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, you're contributing to this country, mm-hmm. you know, I just think, why would the U.S. not want Sam to say, or this person with a bachelor's degree and working a good job? I, you know, if I was going to talk to Trump, I, Trump, I know you're listening. I know you love, <laughs> I know you love my podcast. You're a fellow yeah. Donald. You know, you know make a <laughs> way Donald. for Sam to stay, please. Okay. That can be the catchphrase we use. What? What? Make a way for Sam to stay. Yes. Make a way yeah. for Sam to stay. That's Hashtag it. Slogan. We're going to tweet it at real Donald Trump. And it's gonna blow up. It's gonna go someone's going to run yeah. on it. Someone will run on that slogan in 2020. Maybe Kanye. Maybe, maybe Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming. Mm-hmm. We love you. We want you in the U.S. Thanks. Uh, but we also believe you will be a blessing wherever you go. Appreciate that. Uh, but thanks for helping us. Yeah. Uh, have a new perspective here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, thanks a... for thanks for having.
Thanks again to Sam for joining us. Ladies, really, there's an easy way to make a way for Sam to stay. I'm just kidding. Hey, thanks again to everyone who is helping me make these episodes possible. Thanks to Eric Domkowski for letting me borrow all his stuff and working on some music. Thanks to my cousin, Mikhail Kraft, who has made the majority of the music you've heard today. You can check out his SoundCloud if you want. Just search him at Mikhail Kraft. Thanks to Adele Javorski making some sweet graphics for us. Hopefully you'll get to see even more. She has a design page and Etsy, I believe. And also feel free to uh, reach out to Sam if you want to hear more from him. He's on Facebook and Instagram. All right. So today's listener of the week is Trent Hofer. Uh, I hope you're listening there, Trent. I remember when Trent was telling me about his very first day of college. He was at SDSU, the big school coming from the small town of Hitchcock, and he was very nervous. He told me... On the first day of class, when teachers read out names, um, I would hide under the table and they got to my name. So, I've got one more episode coming in our series about people who are from different cultures and ethnicities. Our next episode I'm really excited for. It's gonna I'm gonna interview my friends Keegan and Sierra about their experience growing up Native American on the reservation and what their hopes and dreams are for their people. So that's coming up next. Thanks for all your support so far. Feel free to like, review, subscribe, unsubscribe, delete, whatever you want, as long as it's nice. Okay? Thanks. Sam's eyes. This podcast brought to you by Donnie's Dumb Jokes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>